Welcome to Three Strands Church Sermon Podcast. You're about to hear a message from our series, Broken Walls. All of us have pieces of our lives that are broken or unfinished. But how do you rebuild those pieces into mighty walls that can withstand attacks? The story of Nehemiah teaches us that if you build your life following God's blueprint, you'll create an impenetrable wall of protection around you. Are you building a life that will crumble under pressure or one that will last forever? Let's find out together. So we're kicking off this series today. If you're following along in your Bible or on your Bible app, it's in Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to be studying through this book over the next seven weeks. Of course, the verses will be on the screen, but if you, want to, if you don't trust our screen, you want to follow along on your own, we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1 today. So um, just by way of kind of giving you a what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. This idea of broken walls um, kind of hit my head as I was reading through the book of Nehemiah at the beginning of the year. And this whole story is really, you know, 90% from Nehemiah's journal. And Ezra, the priest, he writes it all down in this book that we call Nehemiah. And so it's like his journalings over several years kind of his story, and um, he's a slave. There's nobody um, worthy of any attention or any special accolades. He's just a servant. In fact, kind of the background of the whole story is, of course, in the whole Old Testament, the story that plays over and over again is that God says to the Jewish nation, obey me, follow me, let me be your God. Do what I say. Be close to me. Don't serve other gods. Don't worship false idols. And over and over again in the Old Testament, the Jewish people break those rules. Over and over again, they decide to do what they want. They decide to follow after foreign gods, worship idols, do what other countries are doing. When God has specifically said, don't do any of that. Just follow me. And each time that would happen, God would punish them like any loving father would do to his children who step out of line. He punishes them, and sometimes it was inner punishment within the nation, and other times it was sending foreign armies to conquer them and take them captive for a while. And each time, after enough time had passed, the nation would repent, ask God for forgiveness and help, and he would come in and save the day. And deliver them out of bondage, free them from slavery, come to their rescue over and over and over again. Until finally God kind of got to this point where he said, I've had enough. I've had enough of me saying, do the right thing and you doing the wrong thing. I've had enough of me saying, follow me and you following everybody but me. I've had enough and so I'm going to send an army that's going to destroy you once and for all. Of course at this point in Israel's history, they've gone through kind of a civil war time, and there's two nations, one the, the northern kingdoms, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is conquered in around 700 B.C. by the Assyrian army, and most of the fighting men were executed. Most of the women and children were taken back to Assyria to become wives of Assyrian men or to grow up and learn how to fight in the Assyrian army. The Jews that were left from the northern kingdom were just scattered around the known world. And then in 586 B.C., kind of a big date in the Jewish 
historical calendar, the southern kingdom is conquered by Babylon. And these are where you get the stories in the Old Testament like Isaiah and Jeremiah warning the people to repent because this is what's coming. But they don't. This is where you get stories like the story of Daniel who is a captive in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. and He kind of earns himself a high position in that government by being able to interpret the king's dreams. All these stories in the, New, in the Old Testament. So the southern kingdom is taken away in 586 by Babylon. Same kind of thing applies. Most of the men who would have been at fighting age would have been killed as a threat to the empire. Most of the women would have been given to Babylonian men as wives. Most of the children would have been put into the Babylonian army to grow up and learn how to fight for Babylon. The rest of the Jews who were left would have been scattered around the known world. And that's the state of the Jewish empire. Well, world powers change often, and the Assyrian government faded out and became the Babylonian government, and the Babylonian government fades out and now has become the Persian government. And some of those kings of the Persian Empire are famously recorded in history outside of the Bible by guys like Josephus and other Egyptian hieroglyphics and all kinds of nations who tell the stories of these guys, King Xerxes and the king we're going to look at in this story, his son, King Artaxerxes. And you have these stories of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They're written or take place during this reign of the Persian Empire. Ezra is a priest who 14 years before Nehemiah comes on the scene is sent back to Jerusalem to gather up all the remnants of the Jews and teach them how to have some organized religion. The Persian government is a little bit more lenient on the Jewish people than the Babylonian government had been. And so the Persian king, who ended up marrying a Jewish girl, slave girl named Esther, maybe because of that, started to view the Jews more favorably. And sends Ezra back to Jerusalem to institute some organized religion and, and hopefully appease the people so that they think the Persian government is treating them nicely and fairly. And Ezra's been doing that now for 14 years. But Ezra is not really much of a politician. He's not really much of a community organizer. He's a priest. And so he writes things down. He teaches God's word. And that's a theme throughout all three of these books. Esther is the queen, and she's not going to do much. And by the time Artaxerxes comes on the scene, or Esther's stepson, she's still alive, but her husband has died. And so. Maybe she still has some influence in the kingdom, it's hard to say, but you have this king, Artaxerxes, and he has given Nehemiah this position of cupbearer. And the cupbearer was a pretty important position in kingdoms during that time because poisoning the king was a pretty common occurrence. That continued really up through the Roman Empire. Poisoning a king or an emperor was a good way to get rid of him. And so the cupbearer always sampled the king's food and drink first to see if it was poisoned or not. If it was safe, then the king would eat it. And so the cupbearer was somebody that the king learned to trust with his very life. And that was Nehemiah's role. Still a slave, still a servant, still not free to do what he wants, but really kind of valued by the king, Artaxerxes. And he writes this letter and says, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, this is what happened. 
It's the story we're going to tell over the next seven weeks. And I want to encourage you to commit to all seven weeks because if you meet, leave one out, there's going to be a hole in your wall. Does that make sense? Like a wall without gates or a wall without block or a wall without mortar, it's not going to work, you know? And so we're just going to cover one piece of the story each of the seven weeks. But, but when I thought of this idea of broken walls, I thought, man, there's so many of us walking around and our lives kind of represent these broken walls that the story of Nehemiah is going to tell. Walls that used to be strength in our life. Used to be some of our strongest points. Used to be things we might even want to brag about or things that others would look at us and say, man, they've got it together in that area. And somehow over time, they've been broken down by the enemy or they've been broken down by an invading army or they've been broken down by attack after attack after attack. And we're left really with nothing more than a pile of rubble surrounding our lives. Maybe not in every area, but in enough because how many busted down pieces of wall do you have to have before the enemy can get right through and just attack you at your core? And so as I was looking at this story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is going to spearhead this effort to go back and rebuild those walls. And as I read through that story, what I uncovered was there's this blueprint in that story that not only teaches us how Nehemiah rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, but also teaches us how to rebuild some walls of strength around areas we've been deeply wounded in. And so maybe for you, that's a sin that you've struggled with for decades. Maybe for you, that's never seeming to be able to find the right guy or the right girl. And everybody you end up with seems to be the same jerk. Maybe for you, that's some kind of lingering health issue, and it's just beating you down over and over to where all you feel is broken. I don't know for you what the broke down pieces of your wall are. But I do know that the blueprint God lays out through the story of Nehemiah rebuilds all of them. So let me read you the first part of the book from Nehemiah's journal, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1. It says this. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. That's where Jerusalem is at, Israel. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned, fasted, and prayed to the God of heaven. And in this beginning paragraph of this story, Nehemiah asks this question that everybody with broken down walls has got to ask themselves to get started. And in fact, if you start at any other place, you're really just fooling yourself. You're really just putting on a show. You're really not interested in rebuilding broken walls. You're interested in everybody thinking you're rebuilding broken walls. You get the difference? And the question he asks is this. How's it going? I mean, how's it really going? And the answer he gets back from his brother and these 
comrades that came from Judah to visit. you got to remember, there's no cell phone, there's no Instagram, there's no internet, there's no TVs, there's no newspaper. Nehemiah is hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. He doesn't know what's going on there. And the first question he asks these guys is, hey, back home, how's it going? And the answer they give him, not good. Right? How's it going back home? Not good. You want to rebuild some broken walls in your life? Here's where it all starts. Asking yourself this question, how is it really going in my life? Not how does Facebook say it's going, right? Not how do I pretend like it's going when I'm at work. Not, not how do I act like it's going when my kids are in the room. No, how is it really going? And if the answer is not good, you can start there. Like God can work with that. He says the answer is not good. And so what does the answer drive him to do? He cries. And that's okay. If you size up your life right now this morning and you ask yourself this question, how's it going in my life? And the answer you tell yourself is not so good, it's okay to feel bad about that. It's okay. It should make us sad. You know why? I don't want to be trampled over by every relationship I'm in. I don't want to be living paycheck to paycheck and uncertain of how I'm going to pay the bills. I don't want to be stuck in the same pattern of destructive behavior my whole life. And so when I size up my life and I say, man, it's not going well. It's okay if that makes me sad. But he doesn't stop there. His sadness drove him to something. It motivated him to do something. What was it? I don't know if you saw it in those four verses. It drove him to pray. You say, are you saying prayer is the answer? What I'm saying is, this is week one of seven. And any answer that starts with anything besides that is just setting yourself up for failure. Any answer that starts with, let me sit down and think this through, let me reevaluate my life and come up with some strategies. Let me, let me determine the kind of guys I should be looking for in the future. Let me see if I can't figure out a budget to get me more on track. Let me see if I can't just nut, nut, white knuckle my way through this struggle. Any answer that starts with any of that is just asking to end up back in the same broke down place you are now. So Nehemiah says, how's it going? And they say, not good. And he says, that makes me sad. It makes me so sad that I got nothing left to do but pray. And that's where it starts, to rebuild a wall. Maybe we could close up now. You say, that's not enough. I need more than that. Okay, be patient. What if we just did it God's way once? Just once. I mean, we've done it our way 20 times, 20 years. 30 years. What if we just did it God's way once? What if, what if His way of building was stronger than our way of building? The rest of chapter 1 is the prayer Nehemiah prays. I want to read it to you this morning. Because my challenge for you today is not to rebuild all the walls in your life. Not to get all the answers in one morning. My challenge for you today is to simply do what Nehemiah did. To size up the situation, 
be honest with yourself as to whether or not it's good. And if it's not good, it's okay to feel bad about it. But don't just stop at feeling bad. Go on to the next step and pray. Pray like he did, day after day, week after week, until he got answers. I'm, I'm going to read you that prayer, but just to kind of wrap up the beginning of this, you know it's amazing what God can do if you'll just be honest with him. It's amazing how much God can rebuild in your life if you'll just get real for a minute and stop trying to be fake and phony and stop trying to make everybody else think you got it all together. It's amazing what God can do when we're honest. And so the question is, does your sadness about your situation drive you to pray or does it just drive you to try harder? Because <laughs> I've been down that road. That doesn't work. Or as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working out for you? you know? That's the question. How's that working out for you? Let's do it God's way. Can I share with you Nehemiah's prayer and then challenge you to go out of here this week and pray the exact same type of prayer all week if you really want to see the broken down pieces of your life built back up into something strong. If you really want to see walls of strength where there's only been a struggle in the past. Can I challenge you to take this whole week and after, day after day after day this week, just pray the same way Nehemiah prayed. It's a little different than the way I usually pray. It's a little different than the way most of us tend to approach prayer when stuff goes bad. But, but here's what he says. You ready? It starts in verse 5. From verses 5 to 11, it's Nehemiah's prayer. This is what he says. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him, and obey his commands. I called this first piece of his prayer <laughs> believing that God is great and awesome, the great and awesome promise keeper. In other words, what, what Nehemiah is saying through verse 5 is this I know that you are the great and awesome God who always keeps his word, who is always trustworthy, who always does what he says he'll do. I know you're trustworthy. You know how we approach our prayer when stuff starts breaking down? We turn into like, let's make a deal with God. You ever notice that? That's the opposite of what Nehemiah said. We turn into this, like stuff goes bad, we get crushed again, we struggle with the same sin again, she walks out on us, he treats us like garbage, we feel broken. And the first thing we say to God is this, God, if you just get this right, if you'll just fix this, if you'll just make it easier, if you'll just make them love me, if you'll just help me overcome this, then I'll go to church every day the rest of my life and somebody else's life. We cut a deal with God, right? We cut a deal. What Nehemiah is saying is, I don't need to cut a deal. I already know that you will do what you say you'll do regardless of whatever deal I can. See, we try to con God into making our life better. And Nehemiah is saying, I already know that if I just do what you say, you will make your life better. Nehemiah's prayer starts off by saying, I trust you 100% completely. And our prayer tends to start off being, I'm not real sure what you're going to do here, but if I do this, will you do that? You see the difference in our prayer and Nehemiah's prayer? What if your prayer this week, every day, day after day, started off with God, I don't know what's coming, but I know you're going to be true to what you said you're going to do. 
I know you're going to be faithful. I know you won't abandon me. I know you're right there. I know you're trustworthy. I know you are the great and awesome God who always keeps his covenant. What if it started off that way? The principle that Nehemiah is trying to teach us is that if we do what God tells us, then God will do what he promised us. We don't have to make him a deal or try to con him. We just have to admit it, just acknowledge it. God's trustworthy. Maybe even in your words it would help you to believe that if you just say it that way. So here's the second piece of his prayer. It's in the beginning of verse 6. He says to God, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. And I call this one relentlessly begging God for help. Sometimes we get into trouble, our lives get kind of busted up and broken down, and it's kind of like, oh God, help me. But then like tomorrow we're on to like, oh, there's a game on, I got to get back to work, I got stuff to do with my kids. But Nehemiah's prayer was night and day, day after day, I asked for God's help. Hear my prayer. Intervene. Help. What if our prayer this week was consume? Yeah, with some mourning. Yeah, with some fasting. But the prayer itself was over and over and over again, relentlessly, like Jesus describes the persistent widow in the New Testament. And he says, she comes to my door at night and knocks on the door. And I say, leave me alone. I'm already in bed. And she says, but I need bread. And he says, go away, I'm already in bed. And she keeps knocking and says, but I'm out here and I need bread. And what does Jesus say in the New Testament? He says, eventually the guy in bed gets up out of bed. Why? Because he's so desperate to help her? No, because he wants her to stop knocking on the door. Sometimes what's needed to get your walls started back being rebuilt is a little bit of relentless pursuit of God's help. Over and over again, David, don't tell me you want your walls to be built back. Don't tell me you want God's help if you're not relentlessly asking him for it. Don't tell me you want to be healed if you're not relentlessly asking for God's help. Nehemiah's prayer was day after day, over and over again. Here's the third piece of the puzzle. In verses 6 and 7, he says this, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. What, Nehemiah? You weren't there. You weren't back in Jerusalem messing everything up, not rebuilding the wall. How have you sinned? We've sinned. I confess it. I admit it. We've sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. And I called this one starting to say the same things about your sin that God does. Stopping the candy coat, phony baloney, Facebook timeline that you put out there. And starting to own your sin for what it really is. Terrible, great, evil. That's what God says about it. It's not just some mistakes, some lapses in judgment. It's evil. God isn't going to be able to help you. God isn't going to be able to rebuild those walls. God isn't going to be able to give you answers until you start saying the same same things about your condition that he says. I mean, Jesus didn't come to help healthy people. He came to help sick people. As long as you're healthy, God can't help you. And I wrote in my notes, you're only as sick as your secrets. 
It's something I've heard a lot in my life in recovery meetings, sitting around in small groups. You're only as sick as your secrets. Are you going to start saying the same thing about your secrets as God says? You're going to keep trying to hide them and put on a phony facade to the rest of the world. God won't forgive what you won't admit. And God says they're evil, they're against Him, and they're great and terrible. You say, my broken down walls come from other people. They've abused me. They've treated me wrong. They've broken me over and over again. What do I have to confess or admit? How about years or decades of trying to build those walls back your own way? Somebody does something to you and you think you can manage it. You don't need God's help. That's called pride. What if we just admitted and confessed our pride to God this week? Every day, day after day. God, I've been trying to do it my own way. I've been trying to build strength and success into my life my way. Trying to accumulate money and a better looking girlfriend and a nicer guy. And I've been trying to get a better job. And and I've been trying to, to not put myself in bad situations. And I've been trying to go to church. And I've been trying to do right. And God says, forget about trying to do it your way. Forget about trying to manage everything. Just admit it. Just admit it. You've been trying to figure it out on your own. God can work with that. Here's the next piece of the puzzle in verses 8 and 9. The next piece of the prayer. He says, please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. Testify. (laughs) I call this one claiming the promise of God. Claiming the promise of God. What if when you prayed this week, you claimed the promise of God? In fact, this promise that he claims in verses 8 and 9, I think it's the greatest promise God ever made us. Did you hear what the promise was? The promise was, I didn't even say it yet, dude. The promise was, if you disobey me, if you do what's wrong, there will be consequences, but... If you return, if you come back, if you turn back to me, there will always be mercy. I don't know if there's a greater promise from God. What he's saying is, you've never gone too far, you've never done too much, you've never been broken for so long, that if you just turn back to me, I'll give you mercy. I'll bring you back to the place of honor that I destined you to be at from the beginning. What a promise. And I claim that in my prayer. God, I don't know all the answers. I don't know how you're going to ever make walls out of this rubble. I don't know how you're ever going to fix me or heal me. But I know that you say, if I'll just turn around back to you, that you got mercy waiting for me. See, we don't like that when we pray. We want answers, and we want them now. God, show me the way to go. Show me the path to take today. Show me exactly what I'm supposed to do. Give me all the answers. Tell me why this is happening, God. Why is this happening to me? And he says, forget about all of that and just turn around to me. And I'll give you all the mercy you need to start the building project. And we seem to think that God's mercy comes 
when we start to reach our destination or when we start to accomplish some achievements. And I hear people say it like this, like, I'm pretty screwed up, man. I got to get my life together and then I'll come back to church. Or it's like, I'm pretty messed up, man. I don't think God could ever fix this. I'm pretty broken. I don't even know what to do next. We think that somehow we've got to get better and better and then if we get good enough, then God will give us mercy. If we get good enough, then our walls will start to be rebuilt. And God says, no, that's garbage theology. The correct theology is you turn around and look at me. You've been walking that way your whole life. Just stop for a second. Just return to me. And if you do, i got mercy for you. Because God's mercy doesn't come when we reach our destination. It comes when we return to his direction. And I've said many times in our church, I've got it written down in some of our church documents. The goal in life is not godly perfection. If that's your goal, you're going to be angry and disappointed and frustrated your whole life. The goal in life is not godly perfection, it's godly direction. Are you waiting for the day when you're going to get perfect? You're going to be waiting a long time. But God is saying, don't worry about becoming perfect. Worry about what direction you're facing. Face me and just start walking. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what's up ahead. It doesn't even matter. I got mercy for you if you just keep your eyes fixed on me. Here's the fifth one in verse 10. He said, the people that you rescued by your great power and your strong hand are your servants. I love that. You know what he said? I'm just your slave, God. I'm just your slave. And so I call this one committing your whole heart to God's plan. I don't got to be the king of my life. I don't got to know everything that's happening. I'm just going to be your slave. No No matter how long it takes me to get out of this mess I'm in, no matter what the consequences are down the road, No matter if everybody else around me tries to tell me you're acting like an idiot for following God, you're acting like an idiot for staying with Him, you're acting like an idiot for not spending that money. Hey, you only live once, spend it up now. You only live once, be with somebody who makes you happy. You only live once, just do what feels good. And even if everybody else says that, I will be your slave. You got all of me. Isn't it time? That in the effort to rebuild the broken walls in your life, you just simply said, God, I'm all in. No matter what. No matter how long it takes. I'm all in. You decide to give God everything you are because of everything He is. And then the last one in verse 11, He says, Oh Lord, I love this because this last piece of His prayer is like how I usually start my prayer. He says, oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In these days I was the king's cupbearer. End of journal entry. And I called this one asking for God's favor. See, the problem is we start with that. We're like, God, make my day work out. Give me some blessing today. Give me all the answers right now. And Nehemiah says, no, put that at the end. Put that at the end after you've already decided to trust that God is trustworthy and will do what he says he, does, he will do no matter what you feel or think or happens. 
Put that at the end after you have relentlessly begged him for help without knowing the path to take. Put that at the end after you've started to say the same things about your sin that God says. Put that at the, at the end after you've claimed the promise of God's mercy if you'll just turn back to him. Put that at the end after you've said, I'm all in and I'm committing everything to you no matter how long it takes or what it costs me. And then at the end of all that, you say, God, today, would you give me a little bit of favor? Just a little bit of relief. Give me like a glimpse at the end of the tunnel. Just a little peek into the future. In other words, what he's saying is, God, make a way where there seems to be no way. The enemy is insurmountable. I've failed over and over again in the same area. I've been beaten down and beaten up over and over by this relationship and by my finances and by my own inner demons and struggles. Would you make a way where there seems to be no way? And so let me ask you the question at the end that I asked you at the beginning. How's it going today? You know, I mean, like, really, how's it going today? not so good it makes you kind of sad what are you going to do with that as you walk out the door today you going to just try harder sit down and figure it out what if it drove you to pray for the next seven days day after day it doesn't have to be long and eloquent it doesn't have to be well thought out but what if it was like this model that Nehemiah prayed God, I trust you to do what you say you're going to do, no matter how I feel or what it seems like. God, I just need your help, and I'm going to ask for it over and over and over again until I get it. God, I've sinned. Let me be honest about how much I've screwed up and start calling it what it is. God, you get all of my heart. I'm all in, and I'm claiming your promise. That mercy is available, not if I'll try harder, not if I'll do better, but if I'll simply just return to you. God, at the end of all of that each day, would you just give me a little favor to get me through the day? What if we prayed like that day after day for the next seven days? If you do that and you come back next week, we're going to build some blocks on top of that foundation. I guarantee it. That won't rebuild the walls in your life, what we just talked about today. But if it doesn't start with that, they're going to crumble. They're going to fall apart. So how's it going today? What's it going to drive you to? God's got all kinds of mercy waiting for us, all kinds of favor to pour out on us. You can finally rebuild the walls that have been broken down maybe for decades, defenseless hearts defenseless lives and we can build them back if we'll do it God's way and you say I don't even see it I don't see the path I don't see how it's going to happen but you don't have to because sometimes when you can't see it that's okay God can see it where you see only rubble God sees redemption where you see only struggle God sees a second chance where you see only broken pieces God sees beautiful people where you see only ruin, God sees restoration. What if your prayer today and for the next seven days started to sound more like Nehemiah's prayer? If it does, God will take the busted down ruins of your life and he'll start to build something beautiful out of it.
Are you ready? Are you ready to start building walls of strength where there's only been past of struggle? Today is the day. Let this moment, as this song plays, be the first prayer in a week-long prayer to pray God's way for rebuilding walls in our lives. Let this be the first day of finally doing the plan God's way and not our own way to build something beautiful where there's only been broken before.